0: Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 Territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 Territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Unless by Carol Shields. I'm Dennis from The Idea Mill, and I'm working on a new podcast featuring a fictional podcaster who has a podcast about podcasts. Across the table from me is...
1: Um, I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I too am familiar with the palpable worm of shame. (laughs) And across the table from me
2: is... I'm Trevor. I'm the branch head at the Louis Riel Library, and thanks to my dog Ziggy, his favorite dog park is right next to the Carol Shields Labyrinth in Kings Park. So I visited that on many occasions in the past year. Nice.
0: we wouldn't do this without you have you been writing emails to us but just never hit the send button go ahead and send your thoughts our way anyway we want to see them you can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our amusing segment nerd words for word nerds before we start talking about the book let's just check in with the panel how are you guys doing
1: pretty good how are you
0: Tired. Had physio this morning. Oh dear. Yeah,
2: but it will gradually improve my uh, well-being. So there we go. That's great. You seem like you have a bit, a bit more vim and vigor to your uh, countenance. That's you're, an illusion.
1: <laughs> your posture looks very good. Yeah,
2: yeah, you, yeah. it's quite um, <laughs> erect. If I can, can I say that on the
1: podcast? <laughs> sure. Uh,
2: yes, erect sure. postures are acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the explicit rating. I guess that I never know how to turn off, so we're covered <laughs> with some uh, words that may be questioned. So uh, I have a funny story. I uh, put up a Facebook poll earlier this month, and it's slightly different. Rather than putting up a number of titles that we would like our listeners to vote on, we decided to go kind of more vague, and we put up a number of genres that we would, would like you to tell us about. And guess what? I forgot to set it up so that it was kind of a closed poll. So some of our listeners added genres, and one of them, British Murder Mystery, fair enough, I've read those, but one of them is solar punk which up until that moment i did not know was an actual genre but as we found out it is did, Do you want to tell us a little bit about what solar punk is dennis <laughs> well i had to look it up
0: because i thought
2: there is no genre genre called solar
0: punk and no there is and it's kind of like cyberpunk in that it's futuristic but unlike cyberpunk which is dystopian and like how everything's gone terribly wrong Solarpunk is like the future if we actually figured out some of this environmental stuff and other aspects of society and culture and things were better so
2: optimism uh, that sounded neat so far it only has four votes but <laughs> uh right now as as we record And this is at the end of April. I don't like to give the exact day or time for security reasons, Mm -hmm. but uh, armchair travel and historical romance are both tied at seven votes at the time of recording. Now, at the time we decide which genre it is, this could have changed. But anyway, I thought that was an unexpected mistake and and a pleasant one to get uh, a couple extra genres added in there. The other ones just to run them down are Sword and Sorcery, 19th or 20th century classic. Yeah, those are them.
1: I'm gunning for historical romance, personally.
2: Historical romance, yeah. So it's, it's a genre I haven't uh, visited, uh, I would say, ever. I mean, unless I've happened to read a historical novel that has some hugging and kissing in it. But I don't think I've ever read one where that was the main thrust. Can you say thrust? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you right. can say thrust as it refers to, like, plot points right, and right, such. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. It might be like a Bridgerton-type thing, oh, right? Oh,
2: yeah, perhaps. Yeah. That uh-huh. is
1: a vast genre.
2: It is, yeah. 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 That'll be almost the hardest part, well, after we choose a genre, then to actually narrow it down to an actual mm-hmm. uh, author and title. But That's we, the you, fun part. You can, you can leave that up to us. We <laughs> you don't have to worry our listeners on, on that kind of uh, detail.
0: Although, if you have suggestions, email them to us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca. So, anything else? Or
1: I just want to say that it's nice to just be the three of us, our last two episodes were guest episodes, were special episodes, and it felt a little hectic, and it is nice just having the three of us here.
0: Slow it down. Yeah, yeah More exactly. intimate conversation about nice. a more intimate book. Mm. Great, yes. Mm. Speaking of which, uh, we should have Toby tell us about the author, after which Trevor is going to tell us about the book.
1: okay. It is kind of strange to be talking about Carol Shields in an auditorium named after Carol Shields, but uh, here we go. So I did really just skim the surface with this biography. Um, Carol Shields had a very full, busy life. She wrote a lot. She lived and worked um, and traveled in so many places. Her and her husband were academics. She won a ton of awards and fellowships. She taught in many places. She had so many honorary degrees. So I'm going to do my best here.
2: Oh, I thought that was the biography. Oh. (laughs) Like, super vague, but awesome.
1: Yeah, I could just leave it at that. Um, But I'll give you a bit more. She was born June 2nd, 1935, in Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. She was the youngest of three children. She had a very privileged, conservative upbringing. She liked to read, and she liked school, um, and it was in high school where she began writing. She left Illinois after high school and went to Hanover College in Indiana. So about this, she says, before I went away to college, I had never spoken to a black or Asian person, never tasted garlic and never heard the word shit uttered aloud. On the other hand, I knew how to write a thank you note, which occasions demanded hat and gloves and how to conduct polite introductions. So I think that gives you a good idea of the environment she grew up in. During her studies at Hanover College in Indiana, she did receive a scholarship to study abroad and she went to England. And at her university in England, she was shocked by both a tutor she had who did not care about her progress sheets and that her residence rules were much looser than what she was used to in Indiana. I thought this was an interesting anecdote. Um, when receiving a male visitor, it was not necessary to have a chaperone. All that was asked was that a woman keep one foot on the floor at all times. <laughs> not sure what that means. Um, So during the winter break, while she was in England, uh, she traveled to Scotland, and it was there that she met Donald Shields, a Canadian engineering student. So they got married in 1957 and moved to Canada. They had five children, and Shields spent the early years of her marriage busy with them, writing in any time she could claim. She does say, I couldn't have been a novelist without being a mother. It gives you a unique witness point of the growth of a personality. It was a kind of biological component for me that had to come first. My children gave this other window on the world. So she did an MA in English uh, at the University of Ottawa. Her first novel, Small Ceremonies, was published in 1976 when she was 41. Her second book, The Box Garden, was published in 1977. Uh, This was the year she began teaching at the University of Ottawa. The family then moved to Vancouver. It was here that Shields published her third novel, Happenstance, in 1980. After their time on the West Coast, the Shields moved to Winnipeg, where she worked at the University of Manitoba and then the University of Winnipeg. She wrote several more novels, A Fairly Conventional Woman, Swan, A Mystery, A Celibate Season, and The Republic of Love. The Stone Diaries, which was published in 1993, was shortlisted for The Booker and won both a Pulitzer and a Governor General's Award, and it's the only novel to have ever won both. Uh, 1997's Larry's Party won the Orange Prize. Not long after receiving this award, Shields was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer, and she had a mastectomy and several rounds of chemo and radiation. Uh, But she didn't stop writing. She published a collection of short stories in 2000, a biography of Jane Austen in 2001, and her final novel, Unless in 2002, which was nominated for the Giller Governor General's Booker and Orange Prize. In addition to the novels and books I mentioned, she also published several collections of poetry, um, two more short story collections, and half a dozen plays. She was appointed an officer of Canada in 1998 and to the Order of Manitoba in 2001. She was also named Winnipeg Citizen of the Year, which I think is something they don't do anymore. Uh, In 2002, she was awarded the Queen Elizabeth Golden Jubilee Medal and was made a Companion of the Order of Canada, which is Canada's highest honor. She died of breast cancer in 2003 at the age of 68. Her obituary in the New York Times said that her work highlighted the profundity of the mundane – well, the Guardian said she had a commitment to commemorating otherwise ordinary lives. Busy lady.
2: Yeah. And died before her time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So Unless is about a writer, Rita Winters, a middle-aged novelist, mother, and translator who lives in a charming town just outside Toronto. Rita lives a happy and successful life until her eldest daughter, Nora, suddenly and inexplicably abandons her family, her boyfriend, and university to sit cross-legged and silent, begging on the northeast corner of Bloor and Bathurst, wearing a sign that simply reads, goodness. In trying to cope with this unexpected turn, Rita counts her blessings by taking stock of her life, and we, the readers, are at the receiving end of Rita's confessional of sorts. Writing this novel, after receiving a terminal cancer diagnosis, there's a sense that Carol Shields knows her time is up in more ways than one. She deconstructs and examines the idea of a novel, commenting on the structure and cliches of the form, while also considering relationships between mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, the nature of goodness versus greatness, what it means to be a late blooming feminist and a meditation on loss. Unless, unless I kind of got it wrong and it's about something totally else, but that's (laughs) what we'll talk about, I guess. Yeah. So how did you guys find this one? Well, as a group of nerd words, this was a this was a feast. This was a <laughs> smorgasbord. I don't know if you ever have told a child that's trying to learn to read that they should put their uh, hand up, and as they read, if they find a word they don't know, put one finger down, and then if they get a fist before the page is out, maybe put the book down because it's a bit too much. So I, maybe I feel like I'm not old enough for uh, <laughs> unless, because I can't tell you how many times I went to the dictionary to uh, look at a word, and when I figured out what this word meant, a word I hadn't heard before or, or heard it but didn't understand it, it dawned on me how much care and attention Carol Shields must have used in picking the exactly perfect word for the situation. And, well, not to not to, uh, be too much of a spoiler, but my, my nerd word later on will be a word from the novel that I just love. I thought it was the perfect word, and I'll explain why. So, yeah, that's that was my first take on it. The words, the language just totally enveloped me as I was reading it.
1: This was a reread for me. I first read it, I don't even remember. It was a long time ago. Um, the only thing I really remembered was the narrative I don't know if you'd call it the main narrative or the overarching narrative of Rita and her daughter going off to sit on the street corner in Toronto and sort of all the other stuff I had forgotten, but there's so much here, you know, there is that one main narrative, but there's, you know, Rita as a feminist, Rita as a translator, Rita as a writer, This is kind of the perfect book, I feel like, to discuss or to study because there's really so many different layers and so many things that you can pull out and discuss here.
0: Yeah, it's a book full of details. I think this might be the most internally focused book I've ever read because, spoiler, the triggering incident in all of this is a woman sets herself on fire on a street corner and another woman witnesses it and is traumatized by it. And those facts are startling and could spark any number of things, but they are barely mentioned. They are not explored in any serious depth, but all of the little things that come out of that into an individual's life who's like separated from this and not aware of the impact of this, it's it's all these little side effects and how one person is dealing with them internally. And that's quite a... I don't know, a shift from the usual focus of a book. Like normally you want some action, you want something like that. But this is like, no, no, some action happened off screen over here. You don't know what it is yet. And all these tiny little rivulets in someone else's life, that's what you're looking at. So that that was quite something. Although I have to admit, like, you know, we were talking I think last podcast about how much of a book you give, uh, like, You know, 10% of the book, 100 pages of the book before you give up on it. I would have given up on this book by any measure because it was over halfway through before I finally started to find things that I could connect to or finally see or feel something that meant something to me. But before that, I was being washed away by tedium. (laughs) There was so many tiny details And it was so internally focused. And as an internally focused person, I was like, no, no, this is like reading about myself. Like, I'm not a, you know, a mother and an author, but like the being internally focused part is something I do all the time. And I read to escape from that. (laughs) And this was like all of that. So it took me a while to find it. But uh, towards the second half, the book started making more sense to me.
1: So did you enjoy it?
0: I'm going to give it like, I would give it like a three or a three and a half out of five. I appreciate it more now that I've completed it and I can see its value in more than one way as I've completed it. But, uh, it's not the type of book that I would reach for. Uh, like I'm not going to reread it, but it's a good book and I can see people with different sensibilities from me than in their reading taste that it could be an excellent or a book. But for me, it's kind of like, it was okay. I'm not upset that I read it. (laughs) I enjoyed it in the end, but it took me some work to get there. I had to be patient with it and I wasn't, in the most patient mindset when I started reading
2: it. I agree with, well, both of you, Toby, I agree with you that there's so much in here that this is a really good discussion book and that we can go down any number of rabbit holes that are in this story. And Dennis, I find that so interesting what you say because listeners may recall that one of my reading resolutions for the last two years has been to read a Carol Shields book. And I have failed. And it took us actually picking a Carol Shields book to read it to actually complete it. And having said that, Last year, I did make an honest effort to read a Carol Shields book, and it was Unless. And I think I only got 10, 15 pages into it. And I was like, "Ah, no, I just, I can't. I'm not on the wavelength right now with this. I can't, I'm not getting anything out of this when I put it down. And this time when, you know, we were going to discuss it, I read it and I'm very glad to have read it and to have got to the end because I feel like Carol Shields is almost playing like three-dimensional chess and, and I'm playing checkers that I'm missing half the checkers. Like, like I, I, there's things that she's doing in this book that are so interesting. And I, I mentioned it in the summary, but I, I really do think it's true that she, she was writing this with an awareness that this was going to be her last book. And so she almost, almost overloaded it with ideas, as if this would be like her last lecture sort of thing, but at the same time overloaded with details of the mundane or of the everyday. And I don't think it's any coincidence that each chapter begins with a mundane word, connecting word that on its own doesn't really mean anything unless you put it into a sentence like unless, although, but, or yeah, all these little sort of prepositions that to me is, is almost like Rita's life. Like her life is made up of these little, those those words are the glue for English. And her as being a mom first and a writer second, like her and a, and a wife as well. She identifies like she's the glue of the family. I mean, of course, we could take different interpretations on it. But that was sort of what I came away with at the end was that it's the journey and it's the everyday it's the routines that are being sort of celebrated and uh, considered and and you 're right, the big events the someone saying someone is themselves on fire and uh, those are all done off off the page and and we 're just left with looking at well what happens after that like I thought it was interesting that the relationship in the book with Rita and her husband. It just seemed like a good, happy marriage. Like
1: not her husband.
2: No, her partner. Yes, her partner. Sorry, which isn't well legally they would still be husband and wife. I think it's
1: it's significant though that they're not married. (laughs) But
2: it's it's interesting that I'm married. But then her name was Summers, and then she became Winters. So Mm. it's interesting that again I think that's Carol Shields talking about the subjugation of women, and that here is someone who isn't even legally married, but she now has become Winters. I mean, she was Summers, right? And, and and there's so many little plays with words throughout it that I would, I was paying attention reading at this time and I knew I would get through it, but I kind of got hung up not only on words that I didn't know or didn't understand, but all these sort of little, like, what is she trying to say with that? But yeah, again, like with the husband, uh, that wasn't, uh, or sorry, the partner, <laughs> that wasn't the focus. And it would seem like there wasn't a lot of drama in her mar- marriage in her partnership.
1: I mean, he rarely talks. He is a very small speaking role in this book.
0: Yeah. 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 Although to be fair, most people didn't really have big speaking it's roles true. aside well, from Daniel Wester- Westerman. Danielle <laughs> Westerman. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: And then the editor at the end, which I thought was really interesting. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, the uh, talk over you all the time. Yeah. uh, Yeah. We'll let you finish a sentence. Uh, I ask a person about their life because someone told me in a seminar for a thing where it's kind of implied that he had been such a jerk before that they had to send him to some training on how to talk to
2: people. The whole uh, sort of second to last chapter or whichever it was with the editor sitting in the house trying to uh, explain why it would make so much more sense to make uh roman the uh <laughs> like it was it was written it, it was almost like the tone was so different from the rest of the book it, w- it was like a slapstick comedy and then the kids come in the dog knocks over the thing and and everyone flies out because they to the hospital and and it, again it was just i thought well this is this is really interesting because that's Another one of the things that Rita is considering is, you know, the tone of her new novel. Is it going to be another light kind of fun summer read or is, or is it going to be there's more to it? And, and this book, too, kind of almost ends on a goofy laugh out loud kind of scenario, which they only carries over into the next scene where the mother-in-law comes over. And she's kind of another kind of quiet, marginalized character until, of course, the editor says, tell me about your life. And then it was just like turning on like a fire hose for the mother-in-law. Um, it's a very interesting shifts in tone there, which I'm sure were intentional. Well, I think even in
0: the most mundane lives, there are those moments where all of a sudden everything goes out the window. You were calm and everything. Nope. Everyone's going to the hospital now. No, nope. We got go to go over here and take care of this now. It's like your life gets thrown into chaos at in a moment, even though it's otherwise very regimented, very straightforward, very controlled. And you just never know
2: when that moment's going to be. I could relate to the husband in his obsession with trilobites or Trilobites, because I, I have a tendency to go down rabbit holes of things we, on, we've on, noticed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> on, on topics where I'll just like have to like, and I was like this even like as a teenager, like if, if there's a band I liked, I'd have to get all of their cassettes, you know, or uh, author I discovered I have to read everything. The worst was when I started getting into comic books mm. and I wanted to collect, say, every appearance of the Silver Surfer. That was hard. That's impossible. Because man. he started appearing in the 1960s. Let me tell you. It was hard in, like, 1990s. I, I tried. I, I gave up.
1: How many did you have?
2: Well, it, in comic collecting terms, they, there's this thing called, like, a long box, which is a long cardboard box, which probably holds about 100 comics. I think I have four or five long boxes mm-hmm. of Silver Surfer. Um, wow. Yeah, just to give you an idea of... So his trilobites obsession, I was like, yeah, uh, I see myself.
1: I saw myself in the uh, angry letters that Rita Winters was always <laughs> writing. I am—I'm um, a fan of the angry letter. Um, often they just stay in my head, but sometimes they do come out and get sent. Um, I'm looking at you, old Dutch potato chips. Um, but yeah, you have, to, you
2: have to tell us a little bit more. You have to tell us a little bit more about that one, Toby. Uh,
1: that are we, do we want to go there? I just feel like old Dutch chips—the the flavor is not as pronounced as it used to be. I'm—I'm I'm a big fan of a. Really vinegary, punchy salt and vinegar chip. And I feel like in the past, Old Dutch fulfilled that need, but in recent years, they haven't. And hmm. so I have written um, an angry letter. I got coupons, but I don't think they have <laughs> fixed the problem.
0: They are a local company. You can actually go up to the factory and just like talk to them. Talk to the workers on the floor. Say just a little bit more, like 5% more.
1: Oh, no. It, it needs like 25% more. Oh, like it's okay. it really needs an, more we're, vinegar.
2: In these COVID times, I don't know if you can just walk <laughs> up to them and uh, but yeah.
1: Yeah. But uh, I, I love those letters. Mm. Um, I thought they were really... They, I just I felt a, a real kinship to those letters, and I read a review of this book that says it's Carol Shields' angriest book. <laughs> and besides those letters, you don't really see that it's a very understated book. But I mean, she really is addressing her critics so directly in this book. You know, I think her work deals with the banal, deals with this woman's world, which is like kind of this domestic sphere, this um, dumb sunniness, I think, as it's referred to. And this is what Rita's work deals with as well. And she gets criticized for this. And then even the editor at the end is like, no, your novel is not about your main female character. It's about the male character. And then that little bit at the end where she's like, oh, and then you know, some critics looked at my novel and in hindsight, they think it was a great work. And so (laughs) I just, I, I really like Carol Shields sort of just taking aim at her critics with, with this one.
0: Uh, There were parts of the book where I wasn't sure, like, I haven't read other books by Carol Shields. So I don't know if the extensive vocabulary that she employed is standard for her writing. It almost seemed like it was overdone for comic effect And there were other things like where Rita was considering, like every time she was talking about someone, it's like, but uh, she wasn't aware of what was happening to them at that moment. But then she would imagine all these different things that relate to this person. Like she was imagining a character down to things like how they treated their cat and what color bracelet they might wear and all these tiny details that she would imagine for people if she didn't know them. And it was just so constant. And it's like is that how she thinks like is that how carol shield's mind is working or is she like taking stuff that she does and exaggerating it and i'm not sure if her mind actually works that way it's like wow that's that's super detailed that would take a long time to go through a lot of stuff but and if it's not then i thought it was kind of a maybe a funny like you know self-mocking thing i'm not sure how to take it to be honest
1: I would think that would be how Carol Shields would be thinking. I mean, she was so prolific, and I'm sure as a writer, like these conversations, these details about what you're going to be doing in your writing probably come go around with you at all times.
0: Maybe. I I don't know. See, that's the thing. I am not sure. There were a lot of elements of the book where I was left unsure because there were so many details and so many potential themes and so much stuff there that in the end, like a lot of it just left me with, you know, the sense that I didn't know how to interpret a lot of it. It's like when you look at a piece of artwork and it's made up of like, you know, 10,000 bottle caps, right? But you don't see the bottle caps in the end. You're looking at it and you get an overall sense of something else from all the tiny little bottle caps. And this book was like that with so many details spread throughout that in the end, a different picture emerges. I'm kind of curious, like, One fun thing to do with a book is to go look at the reviews and just compare what people are focusing on. And when I was looking at reviews for Unless, a lot of people focused on the feminism uh, because it was a big element of the book. A lot of people focused on the life of a writer. And then there was, you know, I think in third, it was kind of like the domestic life kind of thing. But none of those was really the main thing I took from the book. Uh, So I'm kind of curious what...
1: What did you take from the book?
0: To me, the book was about how do you go on with your life when there is something terribly wrong and you don't know what to do about it. To me, that was the central element of the book. She was awash in details of her everyday life. But this, there was something wrong. Her daughter was on the street corner. She didn't know why. She couldn't figure out why. And so she was examining the world through the lens that she was most familiar with: her feminism, uh, Danielle Westerman's writings. Uh, they were a huge element in how she was interpreting it. Her angry letters were all about, you know, what feminism destroying thing this particular thing was doing. That was her lens for everything. But it was really just how do I? And I think at one point she says, like, how am I putting on a dinner party? when my daughter is on the street how am i going to this meeting when my daughter is on the street like how do you live knowing something is wrong and you can't fix it so to me that was like the central thing but none of the reviews i read mentioned it at all um they were all focused on the the major themes that kind of go through and to me those major themes they're there they're legitimate i'm not saying that that's not what the book's about either uh cuz i think the book is about 20 different things but to me, those were all the bottle caps. Those were all the little points of sand on a on a beach or something like that that eventually give you a picture, and that was the picture I drew from it.
2: Did you guys have other things that came out at, uh, to well, you? Well, one thing that struck me was that I agree that it touches on a number of themes. One of the major ones is the idea of loss and brokenness. In this book, it was the loss of her daughter, not actually through death, but through the breaking of the family and this unexpected thing and I couldn't help but think that perhaps her cancer diagnosis and dealing with you know the loss of so many things that that meant must have played a huge role in in maybe just in the back of her mind as she as she was writing this. I don't know if that that's right or not, but you do get that sense of. You know, I, I've had a pretty good life. I've 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 been a pretty good person, and yet this thing unexpectedly happened. Why? And whether this is her way of somehow coming to terms with that or working with that, but I just like it was interesting when you were talking there, Dennis. I, I have a quotation here that when Carol Shields was being interviewed about this book, and this is what she said about what it's about for for better or for worse. I is about a bunch of things, but she says, "I like to think of this book on these four little legs." this idea of mothers and children, the idea of writers and readers. I wanted to talk about the writing process. I wanted to talk about goodness. And then I wanted to talk about men and women, this gender issue, which interests me so much and has actually been a part of every book I've written. I think I am always writing about this. So yeah, it doesn't seem like there's one thrust that she's kind of touching on all these things throughout the book.
1: I also thought this novel could be almost a book... An instructive book on how to write? I mean, she talks so much about like, oh, you know, a narrator or um, a protagonist in a book needs friends, but then she'll, you know, the character will go out with her own friends and there's this meta-ness there. Like, she writes about how your protagonist needs a past and needs a childhood, and then she writes about her own past and childhood. So we're getting this, like this is what a novel needs and then an example of how to do it. And I thought that was a really interesting aspect of the novel as well.
2: Just one more level of meta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of reviews, I, I, I discovered a delightful typo in the online version of the Kirkus reviews of the book where it said Nora has been jiving on the streets of Toronto instead of living. <laughs> so I just made a little note that I thought that was something that I'm sure Carol Shields would think would be funny. Jiving. <laughs> On the streets
1: yeah definitely not jiving no she no, wasn't
2: i
0: i did like the way that the family respected nora's i guess decision when they didn't understand what was the decision was or what was prompting it but like they they respected it they didn't like try to drag her off well i guess nora did try to drag her off at least once but for the most part they respected her but also kept visiting like, uh, she went at least once a week, and uh, her daughters went mostly every week, uh, except a couple of times. And uh, her husband or her partner went regularly. So they still kept contact while still trying to respect Nora's decision, even though they couldn't understand it. It was a good, solid family.
2: Yeah, it was like they're saying, you know, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how to fix it, but we love you, and we're we're here for whenever you need us. It was kind of a, just a lovely kind of thing that, and also it probably was a situation of, we don't know what to do. So we're going to try this. We're going to bring her sandwiches. We're going to bring her like a stack of 20s or, you know, we don't, we don't know, but we, we know where she is and that's a blessing and we, we can check on her and, and then we have to live our lives. We have to put on dinner parties. We have to, uh, you know, do these things. And and it's interesting. Very, very, um, a well-written description of the mundane, (laughs) as you said before.
1: Did either of you watch the trailer for the movie? No, No. Catherine Keener plays Rita Winters, who I'm a big fan of. Um, As with any movie, they deviate. I mean, I can tell just from the trailer that they deviate a lot from the book. And I mean, it's such a it's such a quiet interior book, as we've discussed. So you need action for a movie. But I I don't think it got very good reviews. Hmm.
0: I can't imagine how you would translate something that's so internally focused. I mean, with books that I like, and then, you know, you watch a movie of it, I'm always worried about how they'll handle the internal stuff. One of the surprises, I guess, was the first time I read a James Bond novel. There was a lot of stuff in there about James Bond's internal state, and his internal state is very different from his external state. In his internal state, he's like, oh, how do I get out of here without the this girl being hurt? And how do I, you know, like there was a lot of self-doubt in there. There was a lot of struggle inside James Bond, at least compared to the movies. The movies, you only see the outer part. and the outer part, even in the books, he was always like steely resolve. So when you have the movie, you basically took out the humanity of the character. And that's uh, why James Bond in the movies often comes across just like a psychopath. Uh, because he's killing left and right and doesn't seem to be bothered by any of it for most of the movies. But this one is like entirely internal states. Like if you just show the external state for Rita, she's making do, you know? She's doing day-to-day life. Like, I I wonder. But I say that without having even seen the trailer, so I don't know.
1: I like the book, um, and I like Catherine Keener, but the the trailer did not make me want to watch the movie. Mm.
2: So. Throughout the book, a few times uh, I was thinking about it. Then I kind of I never really thought very deeply about it. Uh, but I'm wondering if you guys thought about this. Aside from the the letters, the angry letters that Rita writes to different organizations and people, the book is mostly written in in the first person. And I was wondering, like, who who was Rita talking to throughout the book? Did you get a sense like which was, was this? a conversation she was having with a particular person? Was this a, a journal that, we, that we're that we reading? Is this, throughout the book, I kind of thought, like, are we, like, as the readers, what role do we play in this? Because she already has her, the coffee group. She has her pals at the library. She has, you know, her her partner for, Better for worse, as far as a, someone, a companion. I mean, he's he's not the most uh, talkative chap, but I mean, they go for walks in the cemetery, and they seem to have a companionable existence. But none of those people are the, and of course, Daniel Westerman, her um, friend and uh, employer mentor. And, and mentor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But none of those people are really the people that, or whoever she, or is there anyone? Is, is that do we need to know who she's talking to? And that's just something to put that out there. You know, I hadn't
0: actually thought about that, but you're right. There, There's a kind of a convention in certain types of writing where you are writing to the reader. Like some, I've read books that start off with Dear Reader, and I kind of feel like this was that. Like it is an author writing to her readers, which is also maybe the way we uh, sometimes at least i uh, narrate in my head my own life right like i sometimes have conversations with myself that read something like passages from the book where i am talking out an idea internally and it's almost like i'm talking to someone else but it's really just me all the time so i don't know
1: i also wonder about so rita you know her main employment is translating a memoir and, you know, a memoir is what she too is writing. You know, she's, she's in sort of the weeds with these Daniel Westerman novels with translating them, I assume into first person, because that's usually how memoirs are, are written. Um, and maybe that influence has, has rubbed off on her as well.
2: Yeah. It only came up a few times where I was like, like, who, who, who am I supposed to be? Like, for example, there's that one chapter. Where she's like, my husband and I still have sex. Does that surprise you? And then I think like, i never even thought of it but thanks for that mental image like you know like i was like you know and so i'm thinking like like, who's she talking to who she talked to someone that she's familiar with obviously herself if we go with that yeah if she's working it through in her head or uh, anyway maybe we're not meant to know i think she was talking to you specifically (laughs) the lights flicker yeah (laughs) i i do
0: feel like i do feel like she was literally writing to the reader like in her mind she imagine a reader reading it which is when i write a journal i some i write it as if some one day someone else might read it mm. uh which maybe makes me self censor a bit in my own journals but uh that's why you I, need code words yeah well i know i'll read it afterwards but it's mm. like i imagine what if someone else were reading it what would i be telling them about my life and i kind of feel like the book was that there is a reader in mind and she doesn't know exactly who it'll be but whoever this reader is they're going to find out what she wants to say mm. the, the self referential stuff was really big in there, and i I got a kick out of the way she did certain things, like the letters were funny, well, the letters were like, what's she doing did- and then after, like, the third one, I think, she's talking to someone else about how she's writing these angry letters but not mailing them. <laughs> and I thought that was, like, this hilarious joke because the whole time I thought she was sending out these letters and she's really
2: having trouble coping, right? And I it's like, like no, her she,
1: signature kept changing, too, and getting yes. further away from her actual identity. <laughs>
2: right, yeah. yeah, it became characters from the... Or the city was from the, yeah. the Witchwood from the book. It, yeah, yeah, it was really great. Yeah,
0: that was funny, too. Just these little little things that would be easy to miss like i missed the name changing thing i think the first time um like the first letter where she had changed it a little bit and then the second one i'm like oh wait oh that's not quite her name (laughs) yeah and then the revelation that no no i'm not actually sending these out i mean that would be crazy right like no no i'm just writing them
1: it is cathartic i Mm. i would recommend doing that yourself if you have any bones to pick
0: yeah there are a lot of uh, like methods of therapy that involve doing just that. Yeah. Write your letter. Write it as if you're going to send it, but don't send it. Yeah. It's supposed to be very effective. Um, I have not tried it myself. I would have found myself uh, online like responding to a comment on a forum. It's been like an hour writing out the perfect response and then deleting it. Mm. <laughs> At the end, I'm like, I'm too mad about this. This isn't a good thing to put out into the world. And then just delete then you wonder why you spent an hour writing it out,
1: but you feel better afterwards?
0: I always feel good about my decision to have deleted it. Mm. yeah because i I have occasionally not deleted and like gotten into like a you know an argument online, and those I never feel satisfied with them. They never end up well either way, like whether I won or lost a discussion point. It's like. I still never feel good about them. So I always feel good about having deleted angry comments. Did we have any responses to the social media stuff?
1: Okay, so we asked, um, goodness is a central theme of this novel. What does goodness mean to you? And um, D. Hampf says, real goodness involves anonymously sacrificing your own comfort or profit to help those in need.
0: It's funny, for a book where that is mentioned a lot... I didn't feel like I got a huge amount of insight about goodness from the book.
1: I feel like the goodness, well, the goodness in this book is contrasted with that of greatness. Um, greatness being only available to men and goodness being for women and goodness being sort of like morally good or virtuous. I am still reading Don Quixote. Um, and <laughs> anytime. There is a woman in that book who is thought to be admired. She's admired for her virtue. Like, and, um, it's just a very historical idea of how women are supposed to be. Like, virtuous is kind of what women, the highest that a woman can esteem to be. So, yeah, I think that is interesting. It's it's not it's not greatness. It's just goodness, you know, that's what's available to women in their little domestic spheres full of the banal.
2: And and I think you know, there's a lot of Carol Shields in Rita and your description in the biography about how she, you know, didn't know a lot of these things, but she knew when to write a thank you card or when to wear you know gloves to a party and stuff. And I felt like that was the same with Rita. Like she would often not follow her own interests for the interests of her, her of her family. But then right at the very end, it, it changed because when she was having that conversation slash bullying session with the new editor, and then uh, she ended up with saying, "Well, it's because she's a woman." And she said that out loud and that's, that was almost her way of mailing the letter. And it was really effective because that the chapter ended with that sentence. Well, it was because she's a woman. Like she's speaking up. And then the very next chapter begins with, well, it's because she's a woman. Like she, like she repeats it twice over two chapters as if to hammer the point home. Like listen to me, you know, if you didn't listen to me the last chapter, I'm going to start this chapter with the same thing. And I thought that was a a very kind of cathartic, I can never say that word. Cathartic, cathartic, cathartic moment for, for the character at least. And uh, I thought, yeah, yeah. because her
1: novel can't be great if it's about a woman. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: I guess I was mentally still hung up on the idea of goodness in terms of like goodness versus badness. And I saw the references to goodness versus greatness. I always felt like they were dodging the question that was on my mind. So I think that's a point that I just missed. I felt like that uh, through a lot of the book, too. There were a lot of things where I felt like she was saying something and I was oblivious to it. Maybe because I'm a man and I am missing a point that is essentially from a female perspective. I don't know. I feel that's possible. Like I said, there are so many elements to this book and so many things you can take out of it. In that sense, I guess uh, I said I wouldn't reread it, but I I can see where it would really benefit from a reread. I'm probably still not going to reread it. No, never say never. No, never say never. But yeah, there is a lot of depth in there.
1: There's so much going on in this book.
0: Yeah. I had mentioned before, like little details, creating a bigger picture. It reminds me of, I think it was one of those European talent shows. And there was one with uh, an artist who worked with sand and she would be pouring sand onto this big space and it's, it's just sand. And then there's another color of sand. And then it just looks like blobs of sand for the longest time until eventually you start seeing the picture form. And then it just becomes this really beautiful image out of just sand pouring in different places. And I felt like this book was a lot like that. There was a lot of sand poured all over the place. And at first it was a bunch of blobs and I couldn't make sense of it. And then as you go, as you get more of a picture, but really there's like five pictures in the sand there. Do we have any final comments or thoughts before we move on to our next segment?
2: I feel a certain level of smugness that I've completed one of my reading resolutions for this year. So thank you both for making it happen. Congratulations.
1: Yeah. And if we're helping you do one of your reading resolutions now and then next month helping you do one of your reading resolutions with the mysteries, right?
2: Yeah. You just want to do something fun. Then
1: you two need to help me with Don Quixote because it's so long.
2: Oh my god, are you suggesting that we read Don Quixote uh, on the podcast? I don't know.
1: I don't think I would suggest it to anyone on the Maybe we can just but... make this
2: another like Ice Planet Barbarians thing. No, we just <laughs> we just kind of read it and enjoy it uh off off mic. Yeah. <sighs> and you've already read it, so it would really be on me to go. try to read yeah. it. That's true.
0: Yeah. I could just reread segments and go, hey, how about this? You yeah. know? <laughs> I'll just surreptitiously see, is there a movie version <laughs> I'll just borrow and no. Don Quixote's been redone in so many formats that mm. yeah, you'll find something. Yeah, I feel like that's cheating. <laughs> Well, if we have no other comments on this book, uh, aside from it's deep, you know, if you be patient, go in, read it, you will find stuff in there. We can move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like?
1: I have a book that is also by a Canadian woman focused on female characters, definitely feminist um, and set in Toronto, but that's kind of where the similarities end. um, And it is Fight Night by Miriam Taves. Have Mm. either of you read this one?
2: No. no, but uh, my wife, Marla, read it and okay. she said, okay, now that you've read Carol Shields, you got to read Miriam Taves. Okay. So and she said that one in particular.
1: Okay. Um, Miriam, yeah. yeah, she's Miriam Taves is, um, one of my favorite Canadian authors, Fight Night is narrated by a nine-year-old girl named Swiv, who lives with her mom, who is heavily pregnant, and her grandmother. And she gets expelled from school, and her grandmother takes over her schooling and gives her an assignment of writing to her absent father. If you've read anything by Taves, this is kind of hits all those same marks. Like, it's very funny. It's very sly. It has a lot of charm and uh yeah it's 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 a great book it's it's slim it doesn't take long to read it's very fast paced and it's just uh delightful hmm.
2: Well, uh, my book suggestion comes out of the idea that Carol Shields, unless very much a feminist book and the main character, Rita, she kind of struggles with what it is to be a feminist throughout. Uh, She calls herself a bean counter in terms of seeing if there's, you know, top 10 lists of authors and why are they all male and and that kind of thing in, in a similar vein. So the book I'm recommending is called Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. Now, it's, it's a book of essays. Roxane Gay is a writer and uh, a pop culture commentator and uh, novelist. And this book came out in 2014. And it's uh, insightful and it's funny. And it was recommended to me by a former panelist on the podcast, uh, Kirsten. And she said, oh, you got to read this. And, and she was right. I have just a little quotation just from the first essay of uh, Bad Feminist, where she writes... Well, this leads me to confess. I am failing as a woman. I am failing as a feminist. To freely accept the feminist label would not be fair to good feminists. If I am indeed a feminist, I am rather a bad one. I want to be independent, but I want to be taken care of and have someone to come home to. I have a job I'm pretty good at. I am in charge of things. I'm on committees. People respect me and take my counsel. I want to be strong and professional, but I resent how hard I have to work to be taken seriously, to receive a fraction of the consideration I might otherwise receive. Sometimes I feel an overwhelming need to cry at work, so I close my office door and lose it. I want to be in charge and respected and in control, but I want to surrender completely in certain aspects of my life. And then she goes on to say, I I care what people think. Pink is my favorite color. I used to say my favorite color was black to be cool, but it is pink. All shades of pink. If I have an accessory, it's probably pink. I read Vogue, and I'm not doing it ironically, although it might seem that way. I once live tweeted the September issue. I demonstrate little outward evidence of this, but I have a very indulgent fantasy where I have a closet full of pretty shoes and purses and matching outfits. I love dresses. For years, I pretended I hated them, but I don't. Maxi dresses are one of the finest clothing items to become popular in recent memory. I have opinions on maxi dresses. I shave my legs. Again, this mortifies me. If I take issue with unrealistic standards of beauty women are held to, I shouldn't have a secret fondness for fashion and smooth calves, right? I know nothing about cars. When I take my car to the mechanic, they are speaking a foreign language. A mechanic asks what's wrong with my car, and I lose my mind. I stutter things like, well, there's this sound. They try to drown out with my radio. The windshield wiper fluid for the rear window of my car can no longer spray the window. It just sprays up in the air. I don't know how to deal with this. It feels like an expensive problem. I still call my father with questions about cars. and I'm not terribly interested in changing any of my car-related ignorance. I don't want to be good at cars." Good feminists, I assume, are independent enough to address vehicular crises on their own, and they are independent enough to care. It's just one little snippet of her uh, funny uh, and also just very insightful. I found it a very accessible book of essays, and they're not all on feminism; they're pop culture. Uh, but it's a it's a it's a good read. So that's bad feminists by Roxanne Gay.
0: I think maybe the fact that I'm not that good with my car either might make me a bad feminist too. <laughs> so. I went with a book by a man. I don't read a lot of literary fiction, so you might be able to guess that I picked Kurt Vonnegut again, uh, and this time Breakfast of Champions. And in Breakfast of Champions, the aging writer Kilgore Trout finds to his horror that a Midwest car dealer is taking his fiction as truth. What follows is murderously funny satire as Vonnegut looks at war, sex, racism, success, politics, and pollution in America and reminds us how to see the truth. So, like Unless, it's a self-referential literary novel that critiques many aspects of human society, featuring a main character that is also a writer. We talked a bit about how maybe Unless was heavily informed by Carol Shields' cancer diagnosis and treatment. Vonnegut states in this novel that uh, a large part of the inspiration for it was his son was going through a mental health crisis, that he was having difficulty processing, and he processed it partly by writing this novel. So aside from that, though, that's probably where most of the similarities end. Vonnegut's spare, simple style stands in stark contrast to S.H.I.E.L.D.'s sesquibedalian writing, and his penchant for wild and fantastical stories is a world apart from S.H.I.E.L.D.'s mundane and realistic portrayals. But despite their differences, both novels touched that part of me that feels overwhelmed by the challenges of making sense of the world around me. So that's the connection for me. And uh, if that's what spoke to you about Unless, then you may also enjoy Breakfast of Champions.
1: Is that the one with the little doodles, too? Or is that Slaughterhouse-Five?
0: Yes, he has a bunch of doodles. And some of them are inappropriate. Um, uh, Vonnegut is one of those authors that really crosses some boundaries here and there, but Usually in a way that doesn't offend too much, but I can't. It's been a while since I read it, so I, I, you know, I don't know exactly how well some of that holds up. But he's still got that warm spot in my heart that uh, vonnegut will always have, I think.
1: Plus doodles.
0: Yes, he he never stopped introducing silly things into serious topics. It just never stops. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word
2: Nerds, where in our panelists talk about a word or phrase that's been on our minds lately. Well, as I uh, alluded to earlier, my nerd word is taken right from the novel, and it's chitinous, and it's about C-H-I-T-I-N-O-U-S, chitinous. And it comes up in a scene between Rita and Nora, when Nora is still at home, but she's struggling and uh, Rita uses the word, or Carol Shields uses the word to describe Nora's eyes as being chitin. And what that word actually means is it's a nitrogen-containing polysaccharide that's tough, protective, semi-transparent substance, and it's the principal component of arthropod exoskeletons and the cell walls of certain fungi. So, how does that apply to Nora's eyes? Well, what I took from it is that it's uh, a hard substance. Nora's trying to be hard. She's trying not to lay anything in, but it's semi-transparent. So Rita can still see through it, can still see through into what her daughter is thinking. So I thought, what a weird but perfect word to describe uh, Nora's eyes if they are really the window into the soul. And also I thought it would be an appropriate word for Rita to use because she probably would have heard it from her husband who was such a trilobite <laughs> fan and uh, trilobites are extinct arthropods. So... That's my word. Shatinus. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Yeah, man, that's
0: layers on layers for just a single word. Yeah. It's hard to read this book without just having a lot of respect for her mastery of words.
1: Um, My word is also from this book, and I scribbled it down. I don't know where she uses it, but it's a word I see often, and I always forget what it means. So maybe by saying it out loud, I will remember. Um, It's the word maladroit. Um, hmm. which means ineffective or bungling and clumsy. And every time I see it, I think it has something to do with robots, um, which it doesn't. Um, and it just comes from the French. Um, mal is bad, and then droid is skillful, so bad skills, essentially. Um, so that is maladroids, nothing to do with
2: robots. And <laughs> that would be malandroid.
1: Or mm-hmm. Maladroid?
2: <laughs> Maybe something in our uh, solar uh, punk uh, book. Well, we're
0: going to make it three for three because my word is also from the book. I think it's the first mean, time. The first time this has Ooh. ever happened. You could mine this book for years for for fancy words. So the one that caught my attention is "ilurophile." Rita says at one point that her character Alicia is not a serious ilurophile and neglects her cat, Chestnut. So Merriam-Webster defines ilurophile as a cat fancier or a lover of cats. First known use was 1914. The etymology is very direct. Uh, The Greek, aylorus, means wild or domestic cat, and phil means lover, so someone who has an affinity or strong attraction to. For most of my life, I had virtually no affinity for cats. I thought of them as aloof and indifferent, as opposed to, say, the expressive enthusiasm and demonstrative loyalty of dogs. Cats lacked personality, I thought, and were definitely not the sort of animal I would want to spend any significant time with. Then, a little more than 14 years ago, my beloved decided she wanted a cat— And I decided I would tolerate the cat because it was important to my beloved. It's almost comical how quickly the experience of living with a cat changed my view of them completely. Over the next couple of months, I noticed more and more interesting things about our cat, Princess, and learned more about how cats communicate with humans and found myself enjoying the cat's presence more and more. And then there was a specific moment when I was lying on the couch and Princess came over, laid on my chest, and purred. Hmm. There is no feeling in the world like the feeling of a cat purring against your chest. It's magical. And from that point on, I was an eilurophile. Same. You can't resist the purr.
1: Yeah, or the uh, the kneading. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I could could literally go all, I could do a whole podcast just talking about princess. (laughs) We're not going to do that. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. Thank you for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Eight Perfect Murders by Peter Swanson. A chilling tale of psychological suspense and an homage to the thriller genre tailor made for fans. The story of a bookseller who finds himself at the center of an FBI investigation because a very clever killer has started using his list of fiction's most ingenious murders. If you're going for extra points this month and want to read the eight novels on that bookseller's list, we'll include them in the show notes. I am two and a half novels in.
1: Oh, well, I'm very curious.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a good list. Uh, one of them is The ABC Murders by Agatha Christie, and I read that
2: when I was a uh, teen. One of them is also the, the, the Red House Mystery by A.A. Milne of Winnie the Pooh fame and... The library doesn't have a print copy, but it is available on the Project Gutenberg as a free download. And that's where I read that one. Yeah.
1: Oh, I'm going to be very out of my element for this one.
0: You got time. Okay. How You know, it'll go towards your book a week thing, but you just got to
2: like double it up really fast. Yeah, And since you're still waiting for the actual book, you could fill the time <laughs> by reading all these other <laughs> um, uh, yeah. uh, books that tie into it. Do you have comments or book suggestions? We want to know.
0: You can write them down on various sidewalks around town in chalk, hoping that one of us will walk down those same sidewalks and stop to read them, or you can send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl podcastwanapigca You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service, and maybe leave us a review, maybe in chalk on a sidewalk. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time Time to to read. Read.
2: That's, that's more of a That's where that's man the one, burp. that's the one I usually look forward to.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you look forward to <laughs>
2: or not maybe look forward to is too strong of a word but I mean expect, anticipate anticipate mm. yeah. 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 Exactly right. It's almost like the it's, we used to clap to get the sound. To hear that yeah. burp then now we're just we're, we're recording. It's better than dreading it. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, I live for it. That's the burp I dread. <laughs> <laughs>